If you would, open your Bibles to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. If you've been with us over the last two weeks, uh, you would have joined us on the first part of our six-week journey covering the Reformation and what the Reformers came to believe and teach about God. In our first week, we looked at Jude's call for Christians to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are to hold fast to the objective truth that God has given us, to us through His Word. Now with Jude's call as our foundation, I illustrated this passage by looking at various high points and significant figures of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Then last week brought us more specifically to a theological study as Larry taught us on the fundamental sola of the Reformation, which is Scripture alone. There Larry brought us to 2 Timothy 3, and he highlighted the, the inspiration, the authority, the sufficiency of Scripture. The Reformers, what they sought to do was recover the primacy of God's Word in the life of the church and in the lives of individual Christians. It was this recovery that, that brought the rediscovery of the next four truths that we'll be looking at. So one today and then three in a few weeks, but not next week, because next week we'll be taking one week break from our series as Jim Cannon comes to serve us and preach. Jim, he's the regional leader. I think he's been here once or twice. He's the regional leader for Sovereign Grace Churches in our area, and he's really served us well as he's, has, he's coordinated various contexts to care for Larry and I as pastors and for you all as a church. Uh, Larry and I, were both going to be gone, although I'm hoping that I will be able to make it just probably a little late to our service on Sunday. Larry's going to be on vacation in Charlotte, and I will be heading back from the soon-to-be Caleb and Christy Barker's wedding in Florida. So my flight lands at like, I think, 9.30, so it'll be close. I'll be a little late. But today we move to the second sola of the Reformation, faith alone, sola fide. As a reminder, sola has nothing to do with the sun. It's the Latin word for alone. And out of the Reformation came five statements that emphasized some of the core theology of the Christian faith. I mentioned a couple weeks ago how at the turn of the, the 16th century, no one disagreed with the essential nature of each of these doctrines. The issue was with this word alone. That was the big problem. No one disagreed with whether or not Scripture was God's revelation. The Roman Catholic Church saw Scripture as God's revelation. revelation. But some just thought that it wasn't quite enough to tell us how to live. We needed another authority that would validate God's word and then reveal God's will to us. Everyone agreed that you needed faith, grace, and Christ to be saved. But some thought that you needed your own choice and your own merit on top of these things. So alone is really the pivotal word of the Reformation. And alone is still a critical word for us today. And today we're going to look at why this word is so important when it comes to the matter of faith. But let us begin by looking at the book together. And I trust that by this point you have made it to Romans 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 16. So look at verse 16. We're going to focus on verse 17, but let's start in 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This 
is the Word of God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we come before You through Your Word, and we ask that You would speak to us, that You would help us to grasp more of who You are and of what You've done for us. Lord, help me not to be a hindrance to those who are gathered here, but let me get out of the way and point people to You and what You've done. Give me grace this morning. Give us grace as we hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Sometime around 500 years ago, a German monk named Martin Luther had been tasked with lecturing on the Bible at the University of Wittenberg. Over the course of his teaching, he taught through Paul's letters to the Galatian church and to the Roman church. He also taught through the Psalms. But there was something that gnawed at him, that really bothered him in his study and in his teaching. And it was particularly troublesome when he came to Romans 1. Now, troublesome, it's probably too weak of a word for what Luther went through. Really, he was distraught. So what was his problem? What was Luther's problem when he came to, Luther, to Romans 1? Well, Luther was bothered by two things in particular. In the first place, Luther was bothered by the problem of sin. Luther was raised in a context where people were certainly understood to be sinful. Everyone's sinful. But sinfulness was something we could in one sense be healed from. In Luther's day, sin was a problem of our existence, a problem of our being that needed healing and transformation. This healing came through what are known as the sacraments. The sinner received grace through going to Mass, uh, through participation in the sacraments. So in order to be healed from the inside, that, that helped heal on the outside, in order to heal from the inside, one had to confess sin. It was through confession of actual sin that the sinner could be forgiven. So Luther was then, he was obsessed with confessing his sin. Luther would confess for hours. He would leave and then realize, oh man, there's a couple more sins that I've forgotten about. He would go back and confess those. He was so intent on confessing every sin that he had one mentor tell him. He said, look here, Brother Martin, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you go do something worth confessing? Kill your mother or father. Commit adultery. Quit coming in here with such flummery and fake sins. Luther, though, he was undeterred. This only sent him into deeper despair. The more he confessed, the more he wondered, am I really sincere in my confession? Am I really contrite? If, as the church taught, God gives grace to those who do their best, was there any hope for Martin Luther? You see, the idea that God rewards our best effort makes man seem okay, and that's what the church taught. Because this idea says that what we do, our best, it would be acceptable to God. But as Luther could attest in his own life, his best always was riddled with sin. It seemed there was really no sufficient way to deal with the problem of sin. Sin, as Luther saw, wasn't just the absence of doing right. It was a seething rebellion that existed with him, within him, and at its root lay unbelief. Luther wrote the great, of the great weight of sin, saying, If anyone would feel the greatness of sin, he would not be able to go on living another moment. So great is the power of sin. If anyone would feel the greatness of sin, he would not be able to go on living another moment. 
That concept of sin is very far from us. Luther began hating himself for his inability to do right. And then this hatred shifted from hating himself to hating God, which leads to Luther's second problem. So his first problem was the problem of sin. His second problem was the problem of the righteousness of God. The thought of being a perpetual sinner before a righteous God terrified Luther. One historian notes that Luther could only see that God was all judge and no love. His righteousness being all about punishing sinners, his gospel just the promise of judgment. Everywhere Luther looked, he felt condemned. He looked to the law only to find that he could not keep the law. Then he turned to the gospel and saw that here too was a declaration that God judges sinners. He is a just God who punishes sin. In his own words, Luther said that I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. There was one verse that persisted in plaguing Luther that he couldn't make any sense out of. And it is this one that we just read, Romans 1.17. And in it, it says that in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther understood this phrase, the righteousness of God, to be synonymous with the justice of God. So he reads this verse and he sees in the gospel the justice of God is revealed. In the gospel, which is the good news, we see the justice of God. How can these two things, the justice of God, good news, be held together? Luther agonized over this. Listen to how he described this plight. Luther says, I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God, that is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. So what was so great that Luther saw in this verse in Romans 1.17? Luther's eyes were opened to the reality that the righteousness of God in this verse, it's not a quality of God. It's not a quality of God that is revealed by the gospel. The gospel does not primarily say that God's justice reveals God's judgment on sinners. Rather, the righteousness of God is a gift from God. Not a quality of God, but a gift from God. This is what the gospel reveals. His righteousness is his gift to those who live by faith. The righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel is the only path to right standing before God. And it was the rediscovery of this biblical doctrine known as justification that was the catalyst of the Reformation. Now, brief side note before we go on. When we talk about the theology of the Reformation that arises from Scripture... We want to be specific in talking about it in terms of recovery or rediscovery rather than discovery. The Reformers, they weren't coming up with anything new in their theology. Yes, it was new to most Christians in their day, 
But what they were doing was recovering, not discovering, they were recovering what the Bible already taught. They were pulling out what was already there. Now over the course of church history, at times it can seem as if theology, as if the study of God, what we believe about Him, is progressing and evolving. As if new doctrines are being formulated out of human reason. Now when these ideas, these doctrines, are based only in human reason, then they're heresy. But when these doctrines are seen in the Word of God, when the Word of God attests to them, then these are true and beneficial and life-giving doctrines. In this sense, we do see progress in church history, but it's not one of newness, it's one of depth. We can't exhaust the riches of God as He is revealed in His book, the Bible. We can't get to the bottom of it. There's always more to learn about Him, more to see in Him, more to glean from Him. So when we look at the theology of the Reformation, the Reformers, they weren't discovering anything. Rather, they were recovering what God had already revealed. So that's the side note. Now back to our matter at hand. People desperately want to feel good about themselves. They want to be okay. And this was what Luther went through. We all deal with this question in some way or another. Maybe not with the same intensity that Luther had. I don't know if anybody deals with it with the same intensity that Luther has. But we all ask this question at some point. Am I okay? We want to know how we stack up. That we're good. One person might look incessantly to their uh, likes and comments on Facebook or Instagram for validation. Maybe an employee, they're just eager to see the sales report and see how they stack up against their peers. We also struggle with doubt. Are we doing enough? A mom looks at the clean houses and beautiful children that fill her Instagram feed and wonders, am I doing enough? Am I doing it right? A young man falls again by giving himself to the lust of his eyes and mind, and he wonders, will I ever be a good person? A dying man might struggle to know whether he's done the right thing, if he's loved enough, if he's prayed enough, if he's been faithful enough. At the heart of each of these situations, all of these people long to be assured that they're doing okay. And this is the way God has wired us. Maybe you don't identify with these examples, but there's something else in your life that reveals this pursuit of an answer to this question. So where do we go? How can we know that we're okay? This question ultimately is just another way of asking, am I justified? Am I right? Am I approved? God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. All of humanity recognize that living for ourselves is ultimately futile. Self-validation or self-justification always comes up short in the end. It may give us peace for a time. We may feel good about ourselves for a time, but it's like approval from others. It never lasts. The approval that matters is God's. How can we be right with God? And the biblical answer to that question is found in the doctrine of justification. John Calvin, he describes justification as the main hinge on which religion turns. Justification was the primary concern of the Reformers, and it's no less important for us today. We haven't moved on from the necessity of justification. Luther held that the church stands or falls based on the doctrine of justification. The reason it was so important to them and it's still so critical for us today, is because it answers the most important question that humanity can ask. How can man be made right with God? Now what we're going to do with the rest of our time will be a little bit different from normal. For the rest of our time, 
I want to look at three questions that get at what we mean by justification, by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. The church stands or falls on this issue. It's of eternal consequence for each of us. So let's be sure we are clear how we may be justified. And then this will lead us to the role and importance of faith alone. So question number one, what is justification? What is justification? First, we must understand as best we can something about God. Justification requires that there is a judge. And God is that judge. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think about God as judge. Maybe you think of some divine Supreme Court justice that always rules right and is well-reasoned. But this idea falls well short of God as judge. God as judge should terrify us. John Calvin can help us here. He writes this about God being judge. Let us envisage for ourselves, picture for ourselves, that judge. Not as our minds naturally imagine him, but as he is depicted for us in Scripture. By whose brightness the stars are darkened. By whose strength the mountains are melted. By whose wrath the earth is shaken. Who catches the wise in their craftiness. Beside whose purity all things are defiled. Beside whose purity all things are defiled. Whose righteousness not even the angels can bear. Let us behold him, I say, sitting in judgment to examine the deeds of men. Who will stand confident before his throne? This is God the judge. Who can stand before this holy God? If we don't understand the righteous judgment of God then we have no hope of understanding justification. Now, coupled with a vision of a just and righteous God, our own sin is then brought into focus. Kind of like we did this morning as we sang, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. When we see God in His holiness and in His glory, we are confronted by our terrible inadequacy, our failure, our brokenness, our inability to do what is right. What hope have we before a holy God? Justification is our only hope. Now, what is justification? Is the answer. Justification is the legal declaration that we are right before God. Justification is the legal declaration that we are right before God. Justification is not the healing of our sinful nature. Justification is not the transformation of our being. Justification does not make us right or make us righteous. That's not justification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way, which was the 1640s they came up with this. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight. Justification doesn't, it doesn't transform us to be righteous. It declares us righteous. That's very important. Brothers and sisters, as sinners before God, we don't need a hospital. We need a courtroom. We don't need healing. We need righteousness. And that only comes through faith alone. This is such a critical distinction. Because if justification transforms us to be made righteous, then ultimately we're justified by our works. We're justified by our righteousness. What we do becomes necessary to be justified. But it's not our works that can make us righteous. It is God who declares us righteous. So justification is the legal declaration that we are right before God. So that's question number one. 
Question number two, how can I be justified? To get right to the point, we are justified by faith alone. Surprise, surprise. I'm going to cut to the quick on the answer. Uh, I cut short, I'm sorry, I cut short the answer just a moment ago to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So I read the first part. This is the whole thing. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. That's where we stopped before. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now in filling out the answer to this question, how can I be justified, I want us to focus on one phrase that we just read. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us. First, consider that phrase, the righteousness of Christ. This is Christ's righteousness, not ours. No one has walked the earth like Jesus did. He was submitted in every way to the will of the Father. He never got angry when things didn't go his way. He never looked at a woman lustfully or took what wasn't his. He was perfectly obedient, completely righteous, sinless in every thought, every action, every desire. This is just a small glimpse of the righteousness of Christ. This is who he is. There's a theological term when talking about justification called alien righteousness. We receive justification through an alien righteousness. Now, this alien does not refer to some stranger thing spirituality or harken back to E.T. Rather, alien means that this righteousness comes from outside of us. It doesn't come from in us. It comes from outside of us. Our own righteousness... It can't save us. Nothing we do can save us. The 19th century hymn writer, Scottish hymn writer and pastor Horatius Bonner, he put it this way. He said, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Nothing we can do. We sing another hymn called Not in Me that was written recently. No list of sins I haven't done. Uh, I forget the rest of it now. No list of sins I have not done. I don't even remember anything else. It's gone. No list of virtues I pursue. And it goes on from there. But it talks about all these things. If I do all these things, it doesn't make me righteous. My righteousness is only in Christ. The righteousness that justifies us comes from outside of us, not inside of us. This is the righteousness of Christ. Bonner goes on in that, in that same hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done, not the one I couldn't quote, but the other one that I did quote. Your voice alone, O Lord, can speak to me of grace. Your power alone, O Son of God, can all my sin erase. No other work but yours, no other blood will do. No strength but that which is divine can bear me safely through. Our hope is in His work. Our righteousness is His righteousness. So that's the righteousness of Christ. Now, The the second part of that phrase that we need to consider is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Imputed to us. Now, imputed is probably not a word that you hear thrown around every day. Imputed is a financial term, meaning... It points to a value being ascribed to or credited to someone else. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, meaning his righteousness is credited to our account. This is nuts. His righteousness is credited to our account. This idea is contrary to the idea of being infused with righteousness, which is what the Roman Catholic Church would have taught and would still teach. 
To be infused with righteousness would be to be made holy, like we discussed earlier, to be transformed into being righteous. Infused righteousness says that we are justified, that we are seen as righteous because of our righteous behavior, because of the righteousness that has transformed and changed us. This is infused righteousness, and it's just not biblical. We have received an imputed righteousness. We are declared to be in the right before God on the basis of a righteousness that is not ours. It's Jesus Christ. It's given to us when we believe. Luther writes this, Through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. What an incredible truth that is. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has, all that he has becomes ours. And this happens only through faith. This was what Martin Luther recovered as he looked at Romans 1.17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Brothers and sisters, we are justified not by our works, but by faith alone. There's nothing that we can add to our justification. Nothing that we can do to make us more justified. We have no righteousness but Christ's righteousness. No good works or merit but Christ's. Only faith is necessary for our justification. I love the cry of the great hymn, Rock of Ages, Augustus Top Lady. He says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We are justified by faith alone. Now, a little less than 50 years after Luther first encountered this idea of righteousness by faith, there was a catechism published in Germany. And I talked about the Westminster Shorter Catechism just a moment ago. A catechism is just a a series of question and answers that seek to teach doctrine, seek to teach truth. This catechism that was uh, first published in 1563 in Heidelberg, Germany, known as the Heidelberg Catechism, conveniently enough, It has a question that deals in particular with with what we've covered so far. And uh, I want to go through it with you here. Question 60, how are you right with God? The answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I'm still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace... God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Now perhaps this morning you are aware that you aren't right with God. That you haven't accepted this gift If that's you, I want to encourage you that today can be a day of salvation for you. You can place your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who bore your sins. He took on the wrath of God on your behalf. Your sin was placed on Him. And by placing your faith in Him, His righteousness becomes yours. It's as if you had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for you. You can be made right with God only by true faith in Jesus Christ. So the way we are justified is only by faith. This brings us to our third question. What does faith do? Number three, what does faith do? Now you might be wondering as we've been moving along, if we are justified by faith alone, does that make faith a work? 
It's a good question. And if faith is a work, then aren't we justified by our works? Like, doesn't the logic of this all kind of fall apart? Well, first, first thing we have to recognize is the role of the Holy Spirit in our faith. Faith is first and foremost the Spirit's work. The Spirit is the one that opens our eyes to see Christ. We actually just sang about this earlier in the song Grace Alone. It says uh, the third verse here. Uh, I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night, but Spirit, you made me see. Spirit, you moved in me. It's a work of the Spirit. John Calvin puts it this way. Faith is the principal work of the Holy Spirit. By faith alone, He leads us into the light of the Gospel. He may rightly be called the key that unlocks for us the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. He is the key that unlocks for us the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. So faith is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is faith alone that justifies us. But does this still give some special value to our faith? Does this still give us something that we can boast in? We're going to go back to the Heidelberg Catechism, which helps us again here in the next question. Question 61. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? The answer, it is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God. Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Now, it's not the value or merit or work of our faith that justifies us. It's the object of our faith. Now, the way this is described is that our faith is instrumental. This is another one of those theological terms that they use when they talk about justification. Instrumental. It's an instrument that enables us to lay hold of Christ, to receive Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness as ours and be made right with God. Our faith is not a work that justifies us. God doesn't look at us and say, oh man, she's got faith, I'll accept her. No, what matters is not in any way our faith, but rather the object of our faith. I once heard it described this way, and I thought this illustration was so helpful. If you were to walk out onto a frozen pond, what would keep you from crashing into the water? Certainly, it took faith for you to take that step onto the ice. But that faith doesn't in any way keep you from sinking. What keeps you on the ice is not your faith, but the object of your faith. Faith only enabled you to take the step. But what keeps you safe and dry is the 12 inches of ice that you're standing on. Faith doesn't keep you dry. The ice keeps you dry. As Christians, our faith, it's not in our faith. Our faith is not in our faith, but in Christ. Faith is the instrument by which we grab onto Christ. Faith saves us because it unites us to Christ. It's the instrument that gives us eyes to see Christ, to lay hold of Christ. And faith looks particularly to Christ crucified. Because there, Christ's righteousness is ours and our sin is His. This is what Paul writes in Galatians 3.13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Luther commented on this verse saying that God sent His Son into the world, heaped all the sins of all men upon Him, and said to Him, keep in mind, this is the the perfect, holy God-man. This is what God said to Him. Be Peter the denier. 
Paul the persecutor, blasphemer, an assaulter, David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross. In short, be the person of all men, the one who has committed the sins of all men. And our faith looks to Christ, looks to this God-man, and receives what he has done. Faith doesn't save, faith clings, and faith clings to the Christ who saves. Faith is the work of the Holy Spirit by which we cling to Christ. That's what faith does. It's the work of the Holy Spirit by which we cling to Christ. Through faith, our sin is counted to Christ on the cross. Through faith, His righteousness is counted to us before God. Faith is that which takes hold of the promises of God. It believes Him and trusts Him. Now Paul uses Abraham as an example of this faith in Romans 4. When God tells Abraham that Sarah will give birth to his son through faith, Abraham trusted God. Through faith, Abraham stepped out onto the ice. His faith didn't hold him up. God's promises did. Flip over with me to Romans 4, beginning in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, for us today. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. John Calvin, he famously defined faith this way. He says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So faith, it looks to God's promises. But faith, it's not an active thing when it comes to justification. Faith is passive. It's passive in that it simply accepts, it receives, it believes Christ. Faith is the work of the Holy Spirit by which we cling to Christ who clings to us. In a few moments, we're going to be singing together of this reality. We confess our weakness and our inability to obey Him, to honor Him, so we we cling to Him. And in the chorus, we're going to declare, but it's more than I can do to keep my hold on you. But all all my hope and peace is that you cling to me. He's our only hope for justification, and we are justified through faith alone. Now, there's much more that could be said on this topic. Like, we're barely scratching the surface, but scratching the surface we are. In fact, whole books could be written and have been written on each of the answers to this, these questions and questions we haven't even got to. Whole books. And they are littering my desk right now. But as we close, I want to highlight two things for the sake of clarity and application. So this is in, in conclusion. First, while our faith isn't a work, our faith still works. While our faith isn't a work, Our faith still works. Justification is by faith alone. But sanctification is not. These are two different things. 
and we don't want to conflate or confuse the two. Justification happens at a moment in time, at a point in time, when God declares us righteous. Sanctification happens progressively as we become more like Christ. Progressive sanctification, that's what this is called, progressive sanctification is the means by which the Christian is brought, as Ephesians 4 says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Those who are in Christ will never attain perfect obedience in this this life, but the Holy Spirit works in us to progressively conform us to the image of Christ. Again, Ephesians 4, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is our head, into Christ. In progressive sanctification, we work with and through the Holy Spirit. Paul encourages believers in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 to work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God works in us, we work it out. Sanctification is a gift to us, just like justification, and we are sanctified by faith, but where justifying faith rests, sanctifying faith works. So as we come away from this morning's sermon, don't just think, I don't need to do anything more anymore. I'm okay. I'm right before God. Now, this is 100% true when it comes to your acceptance before God, to your justification. But God still calls us to follow Him, to obey Him, to honor Him, to lay down our lives for His glory. And this all takes work and sacrifice and sweat and pain. This work doesn't save us, doesn't justify us. It serves to glorify God. So while our faith isn't work, our faith still works. Second and finally, enjoy and rest in your justification. This morning's sermon is not some heady theological discussion detached from Monday morning. Justification means that we can rest in knowing that our hope doesn't lie within us in what we can do, but it lies outside of us in what God has done. Kevin DeYoung, he puts it this way, helpfully. Justification means I don't have to find the God within because I have already been declared innocent by the God without. It means an end to all my futile attempts at self-justification, whether by politics, parenting, or preaching. Justification means I can sleep soundly at night, whether I wake up in the morning or not, knowing that God is for me and not against me. Brothers and sisters, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is no more ambiguous guilt that you have to wrestle with, no more hopeless striving that you have to deal with. God has the requirement that we perfectly obey, and man has an inability to do this, to perfectly obey. But we have a hope in Christ that will never fail us. I'm going to close with this quote from Calvin. He says, There is but one means of liberation that can rescue us from such miserable calamity the appearance of Christ the Redeemer, through whose hand the Heavenly Father, pitying us out of His infinite goodness and mercy, willed to help us, if indeed with firm faith we embrace this mercy and rest in it with steadfast hope. Brothers and sisters, find rest in the peace that we have as we are justified by faith alone. Bow your heads and pray with me. Oh, Father, thank You for these glorious truths that we are declared righteous in your sight when we turn to faith in you, when we receive all that you have done with, for us, when we receive your righteousness as a gift. Lord, may we rest in this reality. 
May we rest in the, in the truth, the fact of our justification. May we find hope and joy and peace here. And Lord, I pray that as we go from here, that you would give us grace to faithfully glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.